Welcome to Unraveling the Anthropocene, Race, Environment, and Pandemic, a podcast series brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective, or LAC, at the Pennsylvania State University. As an interdisciplinary group, we promote visionary scholarship in the humanities, we build community across different fields of study, and we highlight the ways that different disciplines inform and shape one another. You can find more information about our previous events on our website, sites.psu.edu backslash liberal arts collective. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic this year, we have developed this podcast series as an intervention into our global ecological emergency. In our discussions with scholars, activists, artists, and community members, we address how global ecological crises both impact and are impacted by political turmoil, widespread outbreaks of infectious disease, and racial violence. In this episode, the Liberal Arts Collective welcomes Dr. Margot Finn, food studies scholar and lecturer in American culture and university courses at the University of Michigan, where she teaches classes on food, obesity, and the liberal arts. She is the author of Discriminating Taste, How Class Anxiety Created the American Food Revolution. During our conversation, Margot Finn will talk about her project, Belly Full of Stars, Feeding Multitudes of Multitudes in Apocalyptic Times. Her project is about multi-species flourishing in the midst of ongoing racial justice, climate crisis, refugee, and global poverty apocalypses. Welcome, Dr. Margot. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Margot, how did you get involved in this exciting project? So I am a unionized non-tenure track lecturer at the University of Michigan, and um, I teach classes on food. Um, as a uh, as was mentioned, I wrote a book that I think is probably the reason I got invited to do this keynote. But um, this conference, I think, you know, they'd been planning it for a while. And so had this idea of doing a, a conference on the future of food in the Anthropocene and where people thought we were heading. Um, and then the pandemic hit. So they they had I got the invitation to speak at this thing, um, you know, back, back in January or February, maybe, and um, and had said yes, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh well, now we're not sure if it's going to happen or is it going to, and then but then they decided to go ahead with it in a virtual format, and it was a wonderful experience. I'm astonished actually at how much of a community we were able to form during the conference. Um, and like I got to, you know, I got to watch all of these talks that I might not have gotten because you know, we would, would probably would have had concurrent panels and then you have to pick and this way I could I watched almost all the talks so it was really, it was uh, a really cool experience so, so that's what the so yeah this conference was just trying to bring interdisciplinary scholars together, it was being hosted by the University of Tasmania with a real um, attempt to capture. I think this is true of maybe a lot of disciplines, but definitely food studies, a more international picture. Because food studies is um, dominated in the West and in the US, um, it often looks like American food studies. And so they were really trying to push against that and trying to get a global perspective on what's going on with food. So, so that's the context of the talk. Thank you for sharing. That's really amazing. I see that there are other platforms where people are trained to create a virtual community. So could you tell us a little more about it? How does your project approach the Anthropocene and its presumptions? What kinds of apocalypses are you addressing in this project? Yeah, I think there's um, there's in some ways two big ones that I talk about mostly, but there's uh, it's actually a, a Quaker public minister, Wendy Cooler, who turned me on to this idea that that maybe what we're experiencing um, 
is apocalypses, that all of these movements that are going on are in a way apocalyptic in that they uncover things that kind of we were already living with, but maybe didn't already know. And so she was the one who really um, made me think about this time as maybe apocalyptic. The Anthropocene is a, a term that I had heard and kind of um, accepted as, you know, like the, the basic logic of it, like, oh, humans are having um, an, you know, a massive effect on everything, on ecosystems, on, on the earth. Okay, now we're in the Anthropocene. Yep, that's fine. And not until this conference came along had I had, to, you know, a chance to stop and think about like, okay, so what does that mean? When did it begin? And um, how does framing the time that we're in in this way to be, to be thinking about ourselves as some sort of major influential factor on geological time, what does that do to the stories that we're telling about ourselves? So the first, I guess the, the two books that really um, influenced how I was thinking about that were uh, Donna Haraway's Staying with the Trouble, which I feel like I, I was already referenced in some of the first episodes of the podcast. It's like every she's a visionary, right? And so everybody's been trying to grapple with, with her idea of the Cthulhu scene and, and her arguments in that book. Um, and then also Catherine Yusoff's A Billion Black Anthropocenes or None. And that um, blew my mind. It was just kind of like, so I was, you know, at the same time that I was like, okay, we're in the Anthropocene, encountered this book that was like, nope, wait, stop before you tell that story. Let's think about who is the Anthropos in that story then, right? Like who is humanity if we're talking about humanity having a geological signature on the earth? And particularly, you know, if that signature is marked by things like nuclear warfare, well, that's a really small group that's responsible for that kind of devastation. Yeah, so, so, um, so really, it's like I, as soon as I started reckoning with the term, I came face to face with all of these interesting questions and controversies and debates about, um, is it happening? Are we in it? When did it start? What does it mean? Who gets to own it? <laughs> um, and, I, and I think all of that's productive, right? One of the, so I, I opened the talk by asking people, you know, to help me try and locate the beginning. Where do they think it begins? And um, the range of answers that I got, it got, I think really, they, they did and didn't surprise me. Um, I, I kind of expected them to cluster and I gave people the wrong link. So there kind of haven't been enough answers to cluster, but instead they've been all over the map. So like the first answer that somebody submitted was 1492, which has like wonderful iconic power. Um, and then the second answer was 1910s which um, I, I, I'm not actually sure why 1910s, but I think there's a lot, of, a lot of things I can imagine might be going on then with the kind of industry that people were practicing, the kind of capitalism. Ken Albala, who gave the comment at my talk, suggested that he liked the um, kind of Francis Bacon, John Locke moment of enlightenment thinking as the kind of beginning of a sense of selfhood. And I really, now I think that answer is actually more in keeping with my talk than my own answer, which was 2000, the sort of linguistic beginning of it. Um, but I think, you know, all of these different beginnings give us a different sense of what that story is that we're telling, right? Because if we start it with 1492, we're telling a story about colonialism. And if we start it with, the 1910s, we're probably telling a story about, I don't know, international finance, maybe I don't know, like something about the post-World War One moment or the or the World War moment in general. If we start it with 2000, then we're telling a story about, I think, um, white liberal precarity and concerned about environmental crisis that comes about around 2000. So these, these are all different stories about what moment we're in and then what it means for, for what we're going to grapple with. So what is the place of the Anthropocene in food studies today? That is a good question. I think, you know, I don't know that I had heard that many people in 
food studies grappling with the idea of the Anthropocene um, before this conference, which is not to say that they weren't just that that wasn't um, a term that I had heard being you know, coming up at the uh, Big Food Studies Association. I will say that I've missed a couple meetings because I had some pregnancies and, and then there was a meeting in Alaska that I couldn't quite get to. So it may be that this is a term that has come into it's it's a recent term so it may be that this has been more of a more of the conversation in the years that i've been a little bit absent from it um, but I do think that there's been a long preoccupation in food studies of thinking about the future. Um, my own mentor in food studies, Warren Belasco, wrote a book called Meals to Come, A History of the Futures of Food, that maps out, um, going back to the 18th century, the debate between people, the um, kind of the Marquis de Condorcet is the, is the key figure, the cornucopians, the people who thought there was always going to be more, um, versus like the Malthusians, right, who think that there's, it's a disaster and everybody's going to go hungry. And then and the kind of the the third figure that he poses is um, the kind of William Godwin the, that we just need better manners that you know there's not going to be infinite but there's also not this kind of you know just masses of people always competing that if we learn to behave better we can we can share and I think in some ways that three way debate um, has been simmering in food study or in things that that could be called food studies for a long time these ways of trying to understand will we have an abundance should we be aiming for abundance and should we plan on abundance. Or is it, is it really a, um, a field of scarcity? And are we really competing against each other and trying to figure out how to just get enough for ourselves? Um, so, so those different ideas about but what, you know, what hunger comes from, where hunger comes from, um, and, and global senses of, of scarcity and precarity and resilience, I think are all at work in a lot of the work that people have been doing on questions of like, you know, should we re relocalize the food system? When people are asking those questions, they're looking both towards a past of did we do it better and also towards a future of what, what can be sustained? Is a more localized food system sustainable? So I think a lot of, there's a lot of these currents of looking both towards the past and into the future in food studies even if the term Anthropocene hadn't necessarily been, um, I think, circulating in a big way until maybe recently. The title of your project is Belly Full of Stars, Feeding Multitudes of Multitudes in Apocalyptic Times. What kinds of multitudes are you addressing here? I assume that it has a more global ecological approach, including other than human worlds as well as human systems. One of the themes that really came out of this conference um, was how much people were pushing against the idea of thinking of, of humanity as separate and how much people were really pushing towards thinking about non-human species as part of our, I guess, area of moral concern or... Um, uh, I guess one of the striking examples that comes to mind, there was a paper that really moved me thinking about um, a slaughterhouse or abattoir. And uh, the manager of the abattoir had told her that there was no ritual slaughter in his abattoir, but one of the workers she talked to um, mentioned essentially saying a little prayer before before each kill. And so in a way there there is ritual slaughter going on in his abattoir, even if he doesn't recognize it as such. And thinking about what that means to create space for um, the reverence for the life of, uh, of an animal being slaughtered in, a, an a, in an abattoir, not the kind of life that we, or depends, right? Some, some people treat those lives with reverence, but in general, there's a sense that we don't need to treat those lives with reverence. And so when I'm talking about feeding multitudes and thinking about what kinds of multitudes we're feeding, I'm, I'm really trying to think in a, in a broad sense of what are all the species that we depend on and interact with, and how do we make sure that everybody's needs get met? 
to get out of that narrow framework of trying to think about how do how do I get my needs met or how how narrow can I define my my tribe and sense of security and instead having to recognize that we kind of have to explode that that we're all so dependent on species that we don't even understand, especially when thinking about the innovations of the gut microbiome and everything that we're learning about how interrelated species are. But what's coming to mind is there's an example of this science fiction story that, um, and I'm not going to remember the author or any of the details, but there's one culture that um, that goes into space on these, oh, this is this probably comes from uh, Dazzle of Day by Molly Gloss. Anyhow, there's, there's a group on this generation ship trying to go into space. And the rich people initially what they do is they sterilize everything so they've got like sterilized soil and they sterilize their bodies they get everything sterile they get up into this ship and they die because it turns out that a sterile environment is not a living environment and so it's another group that manages to realize that actually what you need is a carefully cultivated but teeming and rich environment with lots of species and so and so the way of managing um this kind of you know ship into space is not to make everything clean but instead to have the right kind of dirt and dirtiness. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to think about too, is like what kind of what kinds of dirt and what kind of living soil do we need to support ourselves? And so then we need to feed the soil too. So the, the soil is part of that multitude that we're feeding if we also want to be fed. I see that now is a great time to introduce symbiosis, which is an important part of your project. As I remember it from my old biology classes, symbiosis is a type of biological interaction between two different species, right? It can be beneficial or parasitic. As a scholar of American culture and food studies, what do you mean by symbiosis? Yeah, that's a great question. Symbiosis is one of those fascinating things where it has both a metaphorical life and then it has like a biological life. Um, so I think what's really telling is that a lot of the philosophers that have gotten really excited about symbiosis and multitudinousness and maybe getting beyond the self is that they've really been inspired by biology, by a lot of findings in kind of recent microbiology. Um, and so some of the examples that I use are really coming from that. So like the discovery, and it turns out this isn't even that old, that lichen, um, the stuff that we kind of, I, I used to, you know, kind of, it's like moss, but not somehow different, that other stuff, um, is actually quite unlike moss and quite unlike anything else I've ever really examined, it's um, a totally symbiotic being that consists of fungus that's living with algae. So it doesn't need roots. It's the, the algae is photosynthetic, creates its own energy from the sun um, and feeds the fungus. And so they don't have roots. They don't go into soil. It can live on anything just like, so one of the first life forms to emerge on flat rock faces are usually lichen because they can, they can live anywhere. These fungal filaments retain enough moisture to keep the algae living and photosynthesizing. So any given cell in a lichen could be a fungus cell or an algae cell, you don't know, but they're all lichen. So lichen is sort of, it's just always a, a plural thing. It's never just one thing. Um, and I think metaphors like that are really rich for getting us thinking about, um, well, am, am I one thing or am I many things, right? I know I've got these bacteria that are in my gut. And so are those are those separate from me or are they like, you know, the algae and the lichen? Are they, are they part of me? Are they in me? Are they part of myself? And and it's challenging for our, our ideas about like then who, you know, what, what does it mean for me to have rights? Who am I that has rights? I, if I think that I've got a right to continue existing, what about the bacteria in my gut? I've been recently trying to eliminate some of the bacteria from my gut because I think they're making me sick, right? But um, do I have a right to do that? Who, 
which part of me has has this right to life that I think I've, I've got? I think it gets really complicated when we start to reckon with things like, what if we're more like lichen, right? What if we're, what if it's, you know, the part of me that I think I am is just the fungus, but the algae is just as important a part of me. And if I get rid of it, then I don't exist. I'm not, I'm not who I am. Um, so I do think that it's like the, we've got these symbiot, these biological realities, the symbiosis, like lichen is really a symbiotic thing. And then we get to figure out what we do with that metaphorically. One of the things that, that Lisa Heldke has really influenced me in thinking of, she's a food philosopher, um, is realizing that we think about symbiosis or when we use that term metaphorically, we're usually using it to mean something really equal. So we use symbiotic when we want to say that something is like not parasitic. Parasitic is bad when one takes from the other. Symbiotic is good and equal and everybody's benefiting and it's mutually beneficial. And Lisa Heldke says like, hold the phone, right? Like if you look at natural symbiotic relationships, they are not equal. They are not like, oh, everybody's, you know, playing along nice and everybody benefits. No, they, sometimes they're toxic. Sometimes, you know, one benefits and some ways, but then it's got some other things that it's hampered by. These are these are complicated relationships. So I, when we think about symbiosis, when we use it metaphorically, I think we're actually making a bit of an error and assuming that the only positive way to interact would be one where everybody benefits or the benefits are, are clear cut. I think that the ways that we're enmeshed are actually a lot more complicated than that, that make it really hard to, to distinguish. And, and to, you know, to go back to the lichen, right? Do the, do the algae benefit from being with the fungus? Well, I think most people would consider them to benefit from it. They don't have enough moisture to exist in the places that they want to exist without the fungus. On the other hand, um, they're doing all the work, right? They are generating all of the energy that that organism uses. And so some people, there, there's different ways that people have tried to, to talk about this metaphorically. Some people say that fungus are, um, they're like farmers and the algae, so they're farming algae, right? Some people talk about it as like they're renters, the algae are paying rent to the, to the fungus. Um, and I think our struggle with trying to figure out how do we even talk about this thing is it, it does push against the ways that we like to talk about relationships, which is, the, which, you know, is to think of ourselves as really separate, really atomized, and then having these interests that come into conflict with other beings and we can only and we have to get what we need and, and our interests are separate from theirs and that just isn't the way I think most relationships work you've got you being in relation with the other thing changes who you are and what you need so your needs aren't predefined by you and coming into into you know meeting somebody else that already had needs that were different from yours when you meet you generate new needs by by having come into relation with each other or by growing together you create needs that you wouldn't have had and you also create capacities you wouldn't have had right like the like and getting to live places that they wouldn't otherwise so i do think that the way we think about symbiosis metaphorically may prevent us from reckoning with all the complicated ways that symbiosis actually plays out, which is usually not everybody benefits. So to get some examples from you, uh, what species accompany you in this process? What connections do eating and storytelling have here? I love that question because I'm thinking about storytelling and eating and how much these things are similar. Um, I organized the talk like a meal and I've been thinking too about how meals tell stories. One of the other keynote speakers said this brilliant thing in her talk. She said, you know, that every plate of food communicates a set of values. Um, and I think that's really true, but it's it's also really interesting that it doesn't necessarily communicate just the values of the cook, right? There's a lot of values that might be communicated by that plate of food that um, that are beyond the intents of the people who who put the things on the on the plate. Um, in addition to lichen, the two I think that are the most standout to me are um, this squid that Donna Haraway talks about. Um, so for those who've read Staying with the Trouble. 
it's, um, I think, an indelible example, right? There's this squid that has to be colonized by a bacteria that glows so that it can look like the starry night sky above to predators below. And it doesn't get to be an adult squid without this bacteria. So just one of those amazing, just beautiful, among other things, poetic examples of how the, the symbiotic relationships that we engage in transform us and they're necessary to us. They're essential. Um, and then another one that um, that I talk about a bit that I think a lot of people will be familiar with is Anit Singh's The Mushroom at the End of the World, which is about the Matsutake mushroom. So a very influential book because it is so pathbreaking and because it takes, again, some of those fascinating biological realities that we're coming to understand about things like mushrooms and tries to figure out what does that mean for how we understand what a species is? How does that uh, challenge what we understand our own selfhood to be? The main things that I think to take, so from this, the squid, the thing that I take from that is um, how foundational those symbiotic relationships are and that sometimes they're kind of, they're dependent on, on being colonized at a particular moment um, and that they can demand really extreme things of us. So in the case of the squid, the bacteria do all kinds, like they make it reshape its body physically, they change when it sleeps and wakes. So it, the squid is really, all of its behaviors are determined by the bacteria in a way that I think would make us discomfort, uncomfortable if we saw that in a relationship between two humans, if we saw somebody really transform themselves for somebody else, right, in a marriage or something like that, that would be, that would give us cause to, to, to be a little skeptical about the, I guess, consent involved. Um, but to recognize that, that when we're talking about multi-species relationships and relationships between very different things with different kinds of power, that that's how it may look in the end. Um, with Matsutake, one of the thing that on, uh, things that Anit Singh points out that I think is really important is that um, the, the speciation or the differentiation between species of mushrooms is is turns out pretty muddled, but the mushrooms themselves are very different depending on where they end up. So genetically, they're almost all identical. But for example, the in, in Japan, where um, Matsutake are kind of most prized and celebrated, they're associated with pine trees and um, and just pine forests, and you would kind of never find Matsutake on anything else. In China, in many regions of China, they almost exclusively grow in oak forests, which was part of why people really thought those were different species, because it's like it didn't make sense. It behaved entirely differently. How could that be the same mushroom? But it is the same mushroom. And I think there's something powerful for that in thinking about, especially as we think about, she and she does a lot with like, because mushrooms spread with by, by spores, and we also have the word diaspora, and we think about the way humans spread as kind of a, a spore-like process. Where we end up rooting can transform us utterly. And so we're still, you know, the, like the Matsutake, when it goes to China and roots in an, or spores in an oak forest, um, it's a different mushroom. It's the same mushroom in a genetic sense, but it's really different. And so there's, I think, powerful lessons for that in, in that sense of um, how, how place-based and location-based we are, whether you know, kind of no matter where we're from, wherever we've ended up. Um, Dion Brand talks about this, I think, really beautifully in her book. And part of what she's talking there is what it is to be in a place and to know that you have an origin that is kind of beyond an ocean that you've never seen. And what does it mean to have an origin that is not that, right? You, you've never been there. What does it mean to have an origin from a place you've never been? And, and, and yet we do have these things, right? We do have senses of our origins that are beyond the places where we might have um, gotten established. So, so yeah, I th so we've got lichen and mushrooms and squid. Those are my three, three big metaphors for, for helping us try to think through these things. I think these great examples remind us who we live with and who we think with. So what are the intersections of environment, race and pandemic in your project? How do you yourself deal with these issues these days? Could you tell us a bit more about the ways in which the pandemic affected you? 
Yeah, sure. I think um, the major place of race in my project is that I think that everything that happened this summer, um, in, in a lot of ways catalyzed by George Floyd's murder, but it had been simmering for, um, for a long time. And yet, yeah, just the explosion this summer. I think that that had a, a real effect on me and on a, on a lot of people in, um, in helping us reckon with the ways that racism it's like, even if we had known it hadn't really gone away, just the spectacular and brutal nature of it came home to people in a different way this summer. And I don't know if part of that wasn't that we were all separate and sitting at home and had like a different capacity to sit with and think about that reality this summer. Maybe that was part of it. Um, I do think that I do think there's there's these kind of twin things. So there's both that kind of the apocalypse in terms of really having to reckon with and uncover racism in the country. And then the way the pandemic both separated us, but made us conscious of the ways we didn't want to be separate. I think those are kind of working together, um, or at least this is my theory. I think that's something, and I think this is why I started thinking about kind of Lisa Heldke's ideas and Donna Haraway's ideas this summer, in that this, this being apart makes us conscious of our embeddedness. And I think also the ways that the violence and virulence of racism has come to the fore, all of this makes us realize that something about the way we're living is not working in a really fundamental way. Like we're not actually living into values that I think many of us really do have about the like equality of all people and the, the respect that all lives deserve. The, the idea that Black Lives Matter and the reason that slogan I think is so powerful is because it it harnesses a feeling that a lot of people have and that yet we're realizing our institutions do not actually enable us to support. Um, so how am I, I mean, I'm dealing with it in part by frantically reading everything I can about fascism and trying to figure out what it is about the stories that I have been telling um, that also sort of, you know, what, where I have also been telling prick stories that end up privileging certain kinds of people, certain kinds of actors, and certain kinds of sub subjectivities over others. So, so yeah, there's, I think, um, like many people, I've just been engaged in this vast project of trying to read as much as I can from as many different perspectives as I can, and, and then finding that it turns out to be a really joyful experience that, oh, there's a lot of people who have thought really hard and really smart about this before, and I'm not floating in a sea of like, oh, I, you know, I, I felt really unmoored. There without the, the self and liberal individual subjectivity, I don't know how to think. And then I looked around and it went, oh, oh, lots of people have already been here before. It's okay. I can kind of sink into the vast knowledge of, you know, all of these scholar poets who have been thinking about this before. So yeah, how I'm dealing with it is frantically reading as much as I can of people like Catherine Yusoff and Donna Haraway and Dion Brand and all of, all of these other thinkers. What can we say about food futures in the Anthropocene after the COVID-19 pandemic? Oh, that's a great question. I've been trying to think about that in, in light of the conference too, kind of, you know, we, we got all these people together and we spent a few days simmering on these ideas of what are food futures in the Anthropocene. Um, I think there is still, I was surprised, I will say it, how much of the conference involved um, assumptions that the local is superior, whether that it's a good thing if, um, if in the midst of people facing greater food insecurity in the pandemic, if more of the answer to that comes from sources local to them, growing food local to them. Um, and that surprised me because there's kind of a longstanding critique of the idea that local food is better ecologically or anything else. And, and so I, I hear on the, you know, it's like on the one hand, I've been hearing critiques of the idea that we must return to the local, um, the idea that actually that's a kind of parochialism. It certainly doesn't work for places like Japan and Las Vegas. It's not necessarily ecologically better even when you live in a place that 
produces a whole wealth of kinds of things that, you know, that um, that the relative advantages of production, pr producing things where they really grow well and then transporting them really efficiently do do still matter. So I, I guess I'm I'm worried about a retrenchment to the local, and then and in a broader sense, I think what I'm worried about is that I, that's just not the direction I want to see people moving. I think that the direction that we need to move towards food futures of the Anthropocene that aren't going to be violent and involve the expropriation of resources for a very few, or that we have to be looking at how to connect people across space in time, um, how to find the ways that we can efficiently care for each other while also caring for all of the species we're dependent on. And I don't actually think that a return to the to the local is necessarily going to do that. I really liked that the organizers of the conference used place-based um, because I think that that's a smarter way to think about what we what we need to we, like. We need to honor place. We need to honor that a place that something grows, a place that something is transported, a place that a person is. All of these things matter a whole lot. But that doesn't mean that we need to be parochial about how we solve our problems or who we think are we're connected to. So I think that food futures in the Anthropocene are going to be even more interconnected. And it's kind of like they already are interconnected. So we need to make sure that we're connecting in ways that are responsible and that honor all of the, the different needs of the different places that people are coming from, instead of thinking that we're going to retrench to some kind of, um, you know, that, that I'm going to get my food locally and that's how I'm going to honor a place. I just don't, I don't think that's workable in our world. I think that we need to think about better interconnections rather than returning to our homes. So talking more about food, I also see that you have a blog. Could you tell <laughs> us a little more about it? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Back in the days when individually authored blogs were a thing. Yeah, I did have a, a cooking blog. Um, part of it was was uh, a place to put recipes and other ideas about food. And and, I, and as I was writing my first book, um, a number of the ideas that ended up in that book got developed first as kind of as, as blog posts, noticing, you know, a Slate article on um, hipsters using food stamps or something like that. And, and just having to, having to tell the internet a little bit about like, what's going on here. This is what I think. I don't know. Does this make sense? Um, I haven't, I haven't written in it for, oh gosh, it's been a long time. When I'm 2013, I think is probably about when I let it sunset and I kept thinking, oh, I'm going to get back to it. And then, and then I didn't. And now people don't do individually authored blog and that's fine. And I don't have time anyway, but, um, I do really like food and eating. And I think I get this from Ken Albala. I think that, um, I think that people who talk about food should be involved in some way. It doesn't, he, he's really on about like people need to cook and he, he's a historian too. So like he wants historians to cook in the historical ways that they're studying. And I think he gets great stuff out of that. And I think that that's cool, but it's more than just like a, you know, I do think that being involved in food in some way, whether it's um, being, and I think we could draw this circle more broadly than food studies currently does. But I think that my time working in restaurants in the back of the house and um, and I think that making sourdough bread and I think all of these things, like they, they do help me think about the, the ways that people are involved in both pleasurable ways and then also in exploitative ways in, in the labor of food. food. Um, yeah, I, I do. I love food and I'm, I'm um, interested in and involved in it in personal ways too, like we all are. We all eat. So as you mentioned, exploitation and the difficult situations of the workers as well. I wonder what are some ways in which research, activism and art can help raise awareness and redress issues of multi-species justice? 
my one of my big hopes coming out of this is that the ways people have been thinking about essential work, what work is essential in the pandemic, will help us think differently about food system workers um, who are among the most like painfully exploited in just about every dimension from the workers who are working in um, farms and the ways that our debates about or just punishing policies around immigration have hurt farm workers, the bulk of which um, are migrant immigrant workers in the United States. And, and I think there's some dynamics like that that are in other countries too. So between that and between the, the idea that grocery store workers were essential workers who had to keep going to work even while you know everybody else was allowed to stay home. Um, and then the, and then you know the ways that bars and restaurants were allowed to stay open while schools were staying closed. So what, what we decided to preserve versus who was considered essential and disposable, all of that I think has, has made parts of our food system and especially the labor and involved in it more visible to people in ways that um, that I'm hoping will be productive. And I think that then for activists and artists and people who are trying to tell stories about food, focusing on labor is something that you can do in this moment that maybe maybe wasn't as available to people before. Like people are aware and conscious and thinking about food labor. So jump on it, right? Tell those stories, highlight that stuff. And, and, and they're thinking about it in a way that I think is open to the sense that they need to be thinking about this because if we don't you know, care about our grocery store workers and we don't eat and it's, and it's really scary. Um, somebody needs to go do those errands. Who is that going to be? Um, but then, and then the, you know, the, the other side of it that we have this pandemic where the people who have been able to stay home and stay safe are white. And the people who have had to do all of the essential work are black and brown is I think helping generate the kinds of conversations that we need to be having about just who does what kinds of work and how it's compensated and what kinds of autonomy people have to determine the conditions of their labor. It, it has come home to so many people that um, that they've had to make these choices that just feel wretched, right? In terms of um, whether or not their kids are going to be supervised or not while they try to do essential work or or not. Nobody should be making choices like that. And we've also seen, you know, at least some of us, the coverage of countries where that just hasn't been the story, where there's been a lot of federal support for people to stay home when they need to stay home, where schools have stayed open and bars and restaurants have been closed. We see that other people are setting priorities differently and protecting workers differently and thinking about what kinds of you know, benefits and freedoms people need to have differently. So I think I just think all of that is a really productive moment that anybody who wants change should absolutely should just jump on, right? There is a lot of people miserable with the way things are, seeing that there's a better way. Great. Let's tell those stories. Let's figure out how we can have that. Is there a way literature can raise awareness about these issues or ethical practices with other species? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't think it depends on what we are considering literature. I think some popular literature really reaches a, a broad range. I do talk about a children's book, um, The Giving Tree, and then a rewrite of it, The Tree Who Set Healthy Boundaries. I think things like that actually, you know, have pretty wide purchase. And and especially children's stories, some of those, like they get into our psyches and they really, they become foundational stories that we live with. So I think stories are really powerful. Um, on the other hand, I think it's hard to say, you know, is could somebody writing a novel, um, make some kind of dramatic change sometimes but that's a lot dicier right like i don't know that you go out to write a novel hoping that it's going to change something or that if you do that if it usually works even you know even the cases where we sometimes think about that the um upton sinclair's the jungle is an example that's often used right that that somehow made us aware of the terrors of the food system and then we got the pure food and drug act turns out that timeline doesn't make any sense most of the book is about immigrant rights that nobody like got excited about after reading the jungle um and the pure food and drug act was probably already on its way to getting passed. And so it's, instead, it's actually he captured the outrage that that did drive those things to get passed. But um, but was that novel really responsible for it? I, I don't think so. Um, which is not to say, 
at the same time that the jungle wasn't important and powerful and didn't tell us something, you know. So, so yeah, literature can be important and powerful, but I think it's often um, it's a, it's tricky how, right? It's 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 not a straight line from I told a story that had this moral and so it influenced people to think in this different way. It's like all you know, if you tell a story that's true, then it's going to resonate in people and live in them, and and you kind of don't know how it'll how it'll resonate and play out. Um, and that said, like I think, you know. I, what I try to do, and I think I, I'm hoping what other people try to do is just tell stories that are as true and as honest to the like reality that you're facing as possible. Um, because if you if you do that, like I think trying to tell a story with an agenda is hard and it doesn't always come out right. But if you tell a story that's true, then whatever the truth of that is will continue to, to resonate. So I think people should just keep reckoning with like, let's look at the complexity in front of us and the injustice and who's an essential worker and what does that mean for who should be protected and just tell honest stories. Thank you very much for this amazing conversation. Lastly, what would be your recommended reading list or websites for someone who wants to learn more about these issues? Yeah, I'll, I'm, I'll go back to a couple of the ones I've already mentioned just because they've been so influential to my thinking. But um, Catherine Yusuf's A Billion Black Anthropocenes or None, it's also, it's super short and it's a great read. I think everybody should read it. Um, Donna Haraway's Staying with the Trouble is, I think, essential for understanding our times. Um, on its Singh's A Mushroom at the End of the World. Warren Belasco's, this is one that, that maybe some people, some listeners wouldn't know. So here's one from Food studies. Warren Belasco's Meals to Come, A History of the Futures of Food is, I think, a really interesting book for thinking about how people have envisioned the future for a long time. Um, and, and you see, what I see in it is that many of the stories that I want to tell myself about either progress or decline um, are just that. They're just stories. And they're, they're stories that have a kind of power, but they're not because they're necessarily um, a true reflection of either the, the past or the future. Um, the, the conference program for Food Futures in the Anthropocene is on their website and the abstracts are really great and everybody recorded their talks. So I bet if you emailed any of those people, they'd be happy to like, yes, somebody else wants to listen to this talk I recorded here, I'll send it to you. So um, definitely check out the program for that and, um, and all the fabulous abstracts and the keynotes are really interesting too. Lisa Heldke. It's not, I think she's working on a book right now. So Lisa Heldke's article, it's chomping all the way down, short, brilliant, really influential to me. Uh, and she's working on a book. So so look out for Lisa Heldke's book in the future. It was a great pleasure to have you, Margot. Thanks a lot for these great recommendations. Our listeners can find these resources on our website at sites.psu.edu slash liberal arts collective. Thank you for having me. This is really, this whole series, I think is going to be so fun. Traveling the Anthropocene is brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective at Penn State. This episode was produced and edited by Mugigi Dick and Hannah Matangos. Be sure to subscribe and follow along wherever you get your podcasts.